is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, March 6, 2021. What a week I had. I did a cruise of Colorado. As you will hear toward the end of the show, I discuss my travels with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, his song, A Rock in the Road. Marshall Fogel used that very term when we did a sensational interview with the billion-dollar baseball card collector. He's a famous lawyer, Marshall Fogel, started Fogel, Keating, and Wagner before he did that. He was a deputy DA in Denver, and boy, did he try cases as a young man. Then he made money as a lawyer doing great work, and he invested in baseball cards. I kid around saying that he's a baseball card billionaire, but actually, he's a trillionaire. I don't know what his money is is or isn't, but I know his baseball card collection is sports memorabilia. It's world-class. It's exhibited in amazing museums like the Colorado History Museum. Marshall Fogel, my guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, followed by Smarter Than Average Joe, a guy talking to you, to me, about non-fungible tokens. Have you heard about NBA Top Shots? This is the new way to invest in collectibles, sports collectibles. It extends to the art world. There's a lot to learn. But right now, we start with the definitive Marshall Fogel interview in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Marshall Fogel, how are you? Living a dream. How are you? I'm fantastic. Are you nice and settled and ready to do this? I am. Fantastic. I am uh, thrilled to have the opportunity to welcome Marshall Fogel back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He's been a guest many times in the past, but that was under the constraints of being on the radio, having to run to commercial breaks. Marshall, we don't have those constraints right now. That's dangerous for a couple of Colorado long-winded trial lawyers. Well, I'm honored to be on your program, and I welcome and congratulate you for your podcast issues. I think it's wonderful that people can still hear about what your opinions are, and your guests are really invaluable to the public. This is what I think. that I want to create the definitive Marshall Fogel interview because you've had such an interesting life. I want to get it down for history's sake, and you know all about history, being a student of this subject. Let's start with the beginning. I understand you are a Denver boy. Where did you get born? I was born in Denver in Park Hill. We went to Park Hill Grade School, Smiley East. CU and DU Law School. 
Right, but what hospital were you born at, for God's sake? The best Catholic hospital in Denver, Mercy Hospital. And dare I ask a gentleman his age, what is your date of birth, sir? January 17th, 1841, but some people think I was born in 1941. 1941. Correct. Wow. Before the war began, for America anyway. Well, I was there at Lincoln's second inauguration. I think you are just hitting your stride right now. But that sets things up for us. That would mean you graduated high school in the late 50s? 1958. From what high school? East Denver High School. That's where my mama, a blessed memory, went. Tell us about East High School back in the day. Well, that was the time when there was a transition between people like that would sing easy songs and then Elvis came along. And that changed everything for a lot of us that were alive when he became famous with Heartbreak Hotel and 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 the society loosened up. But we had a great high school. We already at the time had a head girl that was Jewish and a head boy that was African-American named Ronnie Shanks. So, you know, we, we lived in a world where people really respected, as Martin Luther King would say, the character of the person, not the color of their skin. And so I lived in a time period at East High School that I thought was ahead of its time. Wonderful people. My parents always made a joke that they had a mixed marriage because my dad was from the west side. My mom was from the east side. As it happened, my dad's family was orthodox. They kept kosher and all that. But my mom's side of the family, they were Temple Emmanuel people and more reformed. Was that true for all these siders and west siders? Or I'm sure there had to be some crossover there. Well, there was crossover. My dad was born in Poland. My mother was the first American born in her family in America. My mother's side was Lithuanian, Romanian, Eastern European. And so I, I grew up in a conservative Jewish background at, at Beth Midrash Hagadol. It's located right off of East Colfax by East High School. And so I lived in a, a world of a lot of parents who were immigrants. That's so weird for you to say that BMH is across from East High School when we all know in modern times it's across from my alma mater, George Washington High School, and then it merged with Beth Joseph, my original synagogue, which happened to be the synagogue of a Rabbi Rose. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get back to Elvis. But for now, we got to find out what you did with your life after you graduated East High School in 58. Well, during my high school years, I worked construction for Petra Construction. We were construction as a hod carrier, making union wages of $2.02 .02 an hour. I sanded cars down on, across from East Side School called Black and White for a dollar an hour, $30 a week. And I sold white bulbs to apartment houses and to get through law school, and I had a wonderful experience at D Law School. I went to school with a, a many veterans from the Korean War that were on the GI Bill later in their life, and so I've been with schools in Colorado all my life. And that Westminster Law School then merged with DU, that was the Knight Division. Was it still going on then? Did you go to Westminster or DU? How did that work back then? Well, Westminster was gone when I went to law school in 1962. 
And they just built a building that's now the building to get engineering permits for construction. It's located across from the city and county building. But that's where I went to law school, right across from the city and county building on 14th and Bannock. Right. I remember when it was there. But uh, tell me this, Marshall Fogel, in your entire life, have you ever called any place other than Denver your home? No, I'm an avid horseman, and so I have a, a place up in Bailey, Colorado, on the Deer Creek, which feeds into the North Fork of the South Platte River that goes into Denver. I, I, uh, I, I'm a big advocate of horses. I've ridden, ridden horses in the National Western and competed in horseback riding, both equestrian and in uh, Western saddle classes. But you've never lived outside of Colorado. Never. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, you could. Did you say, well, I'm going to live in New York for a year or anything like that? No desire? No, I always like living here. I've got my family here. I have six grandchildren, four of them live here with two of my sons. And my daughter lives in Santa Barbara, and, I, and we're a very close family. But I like Denver. Uh, you know, my roots are here. All my friends from grade school and high school I still see. So I'm rooted in Denver. I understand that completely. What about becoming a lawyer? Was it everything you hoped for? Tell everybody your first job. It's kind of like my first job. Well, when I graduated law school, I was always at the bottom of my class. I wasn't a good student at CU nor at Denver University Law School. But I remember giving a speech in labor law. And the dean of the law school, Dean Phil Lynn, taught that course. And he pulled me over to the side after the class that I gave an hour speech on labor law. And he said, you know, Marshall, you'll never be a corporate lawyer. You'll never be a judge, but you'll be a hell of a trial lawyer. Find your way. And I took those simple words and took them to heart. I went and applied for the DA's job under a great DA, Bert Keating, and he hired me. But at first, he didn't want to hire me because I was only 24 years old. But I sat in the lobby of his office down on the West Side Court building on Colfax and Calumet. And then he said, get in the office. And I got in the office. He said, you know, I changed my mind. I'm going to hire you. And I said, well, why? He said, because you're the only one I know that looks like a Greek, Italian, Mexican Jew. And I only have to hire you now. Get out of here and go to work and you get two weeks free. And that's how I got the job. And I'm still the youngest DA they ever hired in Denver. 24 years old. By the time I was 27, I'd handled over 30 murder cases. I was the first teacher at the Denver Police Academy that was a lawyer. And I, I had a lot of issues that I was able to resolve dealing with the police department and uh, dealing with the public. It was a great job and a great start for me. Now, you said this guy, Bert Keating, was a great guy, but it sounds like he was trying to fill all his diversity quota by hiring one guy, you. Well, he was ahead of his time. He hired African-Americans. He, he hired women. In fact, I lobbied to have a woman try a murder case with me. And in Colorado, no, no female deputy DA ever tried a murder case, and he agreed to let me have a real week try a murder case with me, and she later became chief judge of the juvenile division of Denver District Court. And in 1982, a lanky deputy DA spent a year in front of Oral Weeks, who was in charge of Division Two of the Juvenile Court, 
And that was the greatest training ground ever. It's back in the day when juveniles got 12-person jury trials. And what a great training ground. I didn't know you worked with Orrell Weeks like that. She was quite a character. Well, she was only allowed to do non-support with another woman named Pat Britton, and they weren't allowed to try any cases of the non-support until we broke the ice and got her to be able to try a felony case. So I'm very happy for her because she was a great person. Unfortunately, she's passed away, but she's, she was a wonderful judge in the juvenile division as well. And Bert Keating is known for being the trial lawyer for the John Graham case when he blew up the airline, the United Airlines, over Longmont, Colorado, back in the 60s. So he became nationally known as a great district attorney in Denver. I was thinking about that with those parts falling out of the sky over Broomfield. It wasn't, what, a few minutes further when you're flying to get to Longmont start blowing up. What a memorable Denver murder case. And for Bert Keating to be a part of it, along with some other guys who became county court judges, like I think Urso and maybe Wiedek and Mueller, they all got involved as deputies. That occurred while you were in law school, or you must remember when that, what was his name again? John Gilbert Graham? Correct. He blew up the plane. It had about 50 people on it, including his mother. He wanted the insurance money. That must have been a sensational case, and it's startling to know a guy like you who probably remembers it. Well, not only that, but, uh, you know, with Greg Mueller and Jim Urso and Gilbert Alexander, who's a, an African-American that became a district court judge as well, Irv Ettenberg, who became a county court judge, Bert Keating schooled a lot of us for success. And there were a lot of people that did very well because they were in the Denver DA's office. Bert, Bert was a fellow that was Irish Catholic, and he ran for mayor and lost because he was Catholic. This is before John Kennedy became president of the United States. So he's an iconic figure in Denver history. He was a Republican, if I remember correctly. No, he's a Democrat. Oh, see, I don't remember correctly. Bert Keating was a Democrat. I'm thinking of Phil Van Sice back in the early 20s gets elected. Right out of Westminster Law School, he hires O. Otto Moore, kind of like Marshall Fogel gets hired many years later. But your paths must have crossed. Surely you met O. Otto Moore when he was on the Supreme Court or in the Denver DA's office before and after his career on the bench. Well, O. Otto Moore, as you and I have talked about, was a pretty big-ish guy with civil rights. And so there was Otto Moore... Red Mahoney, who was Irish Catholic, and Charlie Ginsburg, who was Jewish. And Red Mahoney, back before I was even around, they would get on the back of a flatbed truck and go down 16th Street and yell at the Ku Klux Klan. And Otto Moore was also an anti-Ku Klux Klaner as well. And you know Denver had a huge Ku Klux Klan population. And those three people, among others, did a lot to, to dissolve the Klan here in Denver over the years. Right, and now the Justice Center is named in part after Phil Van Sice, a courageous Republican who stood up to the Klan, hired O. Otto Moore, who had gone to South High School. We have all the high schools represented, but the tradition continued with Democrat Bert Keating, and then Dale Tooley came along. 
you must have known Dale Tooley pretty well. He's the guy who hired me, but I bet you knew him better than I did. I knew Dale very well, and, and unfortunately, he was only about 50 years old when he passed away. He's always wanted to be mayor of Denver, and unfortunately, he lost over several occasions. But Dale was an advocate. Dale was a, a good friend, and his unfortunate passing was uh, way too early in his life. But without him more, again, back to him, he and I and Ike Melman would go to Ottomore's apartment when he retired, and we rewrote the car of the criminal code that's still used today. So I have an enormous respect for those gentlemen. We had a, a wonderful experience reforming the car of criminal code, which had a lot of old statutes that really didn't apply anymore. Tell me about Ike Melman, because he's the father of Jerry Melman, who I knew well, who played golf every Sunday with my father at Park Hill, and I would tag along. And now his son's great doctor, David Melman, who is my doctor. So I want to hear about Ike Melman. Well, when I was young and back in the 60s, Ike was already an elderly gentleman. He was more of a general practitioner, which a lot of lawyers were. You know, they did all kinds of different aspects of the law. We didn't specialize in those days. Law was not complicated, and we were a small town. You know, when I grew up, Denver was only about 250,000 people, and the whole state had maybe less than a million people. So we all knew each other. You know, the legal community was very close, and I was an old-time practitioner, and those kind of people like he and Fred Dickerson and Raleigh Rogers, and I can name Walter Garash, they were all these wonderful trial lawyers that, you know, oratory was everything, and they would pack the courtrooms with people on Social Security and, you know, trying cases, you had an audience. People would come to watch because these people were great orators. John Gibbons, who tried the John Gilbert Graham case, Francis Salazar. I mean, I can name a lot of them. These guys were wonderful when it came to trial experience. You know, they'd yell and scream, and uh, they were wonderful advocates. But, you know, we don't do that anymore, and I miss it. I had Gary Jackson on. He had a great career as a deputy DA and then a great trial lawyer. He was prosecutor in the federal side, then a judge, and now he's hit mandatory retirement. But he told us about being taken back in the day to the DAC, which used to be home of John Gilbert Locke, 1325 Glenarm, when he ran the Klan as Grand Dragon in the early 20s. And Gary Jackson said no. I got introduced over there by Dale Tooley's crew because he was trying to integrate the place with Marshall Fogel, among others. Marshall, tell me the story about the Denver Athletic Club. Well, the story is, the real story is that I'm the first person of the Jewish faith to be a member of the Denver Athletic Club. And that would be probably around 1970. Is that when you passed for being a Greek or an Italian or something like that again? Or how did you trick them? Well, you know, on the application, it was interesting because you had to apply. And they asked where your father was born. And I said, Poland. And where's your mother born? I said, Denver, from Romanian descent, Lithuanian. And what your dad do as a pawnbroker. So it was pretty obviously what my religion was based upon what I wrote down. Then they wanted two sponsors, and one of them was 
Judge Bowman, the chief judge of the criminal division. And I don't remember the other one, but I was well accepted. It made the newspapers. I think a lot of people like Dale Tooley would have quit if I hadn't gotten in, but I was well received. And then I called Gary Jackson. I called him. Did Dale Tooley help? Probably. But I'm the one that sponsored Gary Jackson to be the first African-American to be a member of the Denver Athletic Club. And I remember Judge Flanagan called me up. He was an African-American district court judge and said, you know what? I remember as a, a boy, I used to have to go to the back door of the DAC to work. They wouldn't let me in the front door. So every year, Gary Jackson and I have lunch at the DAC. We take a picture of the both of us walking in the front door of the DAC. So it's a it's a wonderful thing for him. He really appreciated the fact that he he along with myself changed a lot of the environment at the DAC, which is a whole different ball game today. What was your motivation? Why did you want to join? Were you trying to break the barrier and break it down for others? Yeah, you know, I remember I always was very ecumenical. You know, part of my life's experience, I was the first Jewish member of Father Woody's Homeless Shelter, which are mainly priests and Catholic, uh, wonderful Catholic people. And I, I think the more that we uh, deal with each other and deal with trying to help other human beings, I believe in grace. I believe in helping people. And so, and I think breaking these barriers down by taking opportunity and working hard to make things different. I'm a Martin Luther King advocate. I believe that you judge people by the character who they are and not the color of their skin. I, I think if we listen to what he said, as opposed to what's going on today, we'd all be better off. So I'm proud to be a part of people coming together and Maybe it's like Kumbaya, you know, I really believe in that as the story of my life. That's good. Absolutely. But what happens when you run into the occasional knucklehead and he's a member of the DAC and he doesn't like you just because you are a Jew? Has that happened? And what's your advice on how to deal with that? Well, I confront it, but I've never had a problem at the DAC. From the day I was a member, I've been well accepted. But, you know, when you have to face adversity, the way you deal with it is you confront it. You don't create a violent atmosphere. You explain what they are doing wrong. You know, I, I ride horses all my life, and I've experienced anti-Semitism, you know, in some of these horse groups, and I confront it. And the minute I confront it and deal with it, it seems to make a difference because people need to understand. It's like Elvis Presley. You know, Elvis Presley's mother was Jewish. And in the Jewish religion, you are automatically Jewish. And if you read about Elvis, here's a good example. He was raised in the assembly of God. His mother hid her Judaism. His father was an anti-Semite. And Elvis wrote that, you know, he never could understand why you could go to church and they talk about Moses and Abraham and all the Jewish heroes. And then when you get outside the church, you experience all this anti-Semitism. And as a result of that, Elvis wore a Star of David, made sure there was a Star of David on his mother's grave. And he joined the Jewish Community Center and he gave a lot of money to Jewish causes. So in his own way, he's a good example 
of how to deal with all of the issues about who he was. And, you know, it's a great story. A lot of people don't know what I just said. Oh, my gosh. The things you can learn by talking to Marshall Fogel. But you have inherited that tradition, which I proudly carry on from my ancestors, that we take note of successes within our community. Hey, look at Marshall Fogel. Did you hear all his success, not only in law, but in the baseball card world? Look, Elvis Presley, he's got Jewish roots. It is matrilineal. We always like to point out Jewish success stories, and you are certainly one of them, and one that was in dispute. And thank God Marshall Fogel decided to figure it out. General Rose, the hero at the hospital where I was born, he was born a Jew, but did he die a Jew? That's a tough question that I never knew the answer to. I knew the controversy, but a smart lawyer I know named Marshall Fogel said, I'm going to try to figure this out. Tell everybody about that. Well, to begin with, I wrote a book. It took me over five years to do the research on General Rose, and he is the first Jewish national hero. He was more by all America when he was killed in combat. So he was the father of tank warfare in World War II. He was the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. He was loved by Eisenhower, Secretary War Stimson, General Marshall, General Bradley. He was an icon and a legend among soldiers in World War II to the point, Craig, that after he was killed in combat, the soldiers of the 3rd Armored Division, there were 16,000 of them, raised $30,000 out of their meager paychecks to help build a Jewish hospital in Denver in honor of their general. And I can't think of anything in my research where the soldiers honored a general like he was. What's interesting about Rose, he negotiated the first surrender of a German army when he was in Tunisia. He had earned three silver stars after uh, the invasion of Italy. He liberated the town of Palermo in Sicily, and he made a difference in the breakout in Normandy. The Germans, in their war papers after the war, indicated if it wasn't for Rose capturing the town of Carrington and saving the 101 Airborne Division, they could have rolled up Normandy and, and stopped the invasion of France by the Allies. He also broke the German defenses in the breakout of Normandy, and he stopped the counteroffensive in a town called Villa, Villa Badon. And he's credited with being the first to, to enter Germany, the first to cross the Siegfried Line, the first to capture a German city. He captured the Queen City of Germany, which is Cologne. And he did a lot of things with tanks that nobody had ever thought about. No wonder he was so revered, not only by the everyday soldier, but by Dwight D. Eisenhower and everybody in between. Maurice Rose, like Marshall Fogel, was a graduate of East High School. And his father was a rabbi at Beth Joseph, a synagogue I was bar mitzvahed in and got married. He wasn't the rabbi when I was around, but back in the day, what do you know about the Denver roots of Maurice Rose? Well, first of all, he never graduated East High School. It turns out that 
the literature indicates that he graduated East High School with honors and that he was an orator and he was a successful student. None of that's true. I have his transcript. He flunked out of high school, never finished, and he never graduated. And they called him the Mustang General because he's one of the few that never went to West Point, started out as a private. And when you work your way up through the ranks of the Army and you become a general, they call you the Mustang General, which is a great story in itself. They could make a movie about this guy. Not only that, but to describe what he looked like, he was handsome beyond belief. He was an amazing soldier. And he's a great success. He's like Mickey Mantle in baseball. Started with nothing and became great. Right. Along the way, though, he meets a lady. She was not Jewish. He has children. And the question became, did he lose the faith? Did he decide to renounce his Judaism? And I know that was a controversy for quite a while, especially in the Denver Jewish community. You were aware of the controversy, right, Marshall? And didn't you set out to figure out the truth? I can answer that question in a positive manner beyond a reasonable doubt. My quest was to begin with to find out why there's a cross on his grave in Margraten, Netherlands. He's the highest-ranking soldier to be buried in that cemetery. And so... Why do you have a hospital honoring a Jewish general called Rose Hospital when there's a cross on his grave? And I remember when I started doing my research, a lot of people didn't want me to do it because they didn't know the answer. But the answer is quite clear in my book that's on Amazon. If you go to Maurice Rose's book, Fogel, you can purchase the book. All the net proceeds go to DU, Denver University. Beck archives, and it's quite clear beyond a reasonable doubt he never converted. He would indicate in his hospital records that he was not Jewish to protect his ability to become promoted. But everybody knew he was Jewish. Eisenhower, Bradley, Marshall, they all knew he was Jewish, but he had to hide it because of the terrible anti-Semitism that existed in the U.S. Army for years before World War II. Well, that stinks. The definitive determination for you was he had a son, and that's a big moment in any man's life. Tell us the proof that helped you believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he remained a Jew. We've been able to discover letters that he wrote his father, Rabbi Rose, about, uh, he quote, Jewish biblical passages after World War One. once he I put down he was a Protestant in his hospital records to hide his identity. He went home and lived with his parents here in Denver and lived an Orthodox life while he was with them. He had his son, Reese, circumcised, which is a big deal in the Jewish religion because it establishes your covenant as a Jew with God. And there's uh, no question that he uh, remained Jewish, but that's some of the examples that he had a secular marriage. He lived with a second wife, Virginia, who was a wonderful woman. She was Episcopalian. And in those days, marrying outside your religion, no matter what religion you practiced, was not well received as it is today. But they each practiced their own religion. They had their son circumcised within the Jewish religion. 
And there was enough articles, and I'll give you an example. When he wrote a letter to his parents in World War One, when he charged the Germans, he would use the sacred expression, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel. And then he'd have his men charged against the Germans. So that's just some of the items that I was able to find out. And there's no evidence he ever converted. He hid his religion so that he could become promoted. He never would have been a general if he exposed himself publicly. But everybody, but the newspapers' accounts during the war made it clear that he was the son of a rabbi. I mean, it just somehow it just happened that there was a cross on his grave because of the time period when there was no. There's so many soldiers being killed that a lot of Jewish soldiers had crosses on the grave. And then he died March 30th, 1945. And on April 27th, 1945, and I have photographs that are in my book where Jewish chaplains went out to the grave site in Germany where he's temporarily buried and pulled up the cross and put a Star of David on. And that's not disrespectful to the Christian religion because, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, Judeo-Christian values are the same, and out of respect, you know, we both religions believe in the same value system. So it's not, what's important is is, is what's the truth. And so there there is a move on foot to deal with this subject of putting the proper grave marker on his grave in Malbrotten, uh Netherlands. I hope it happens. A rose is a rose is a rose. And that rose was the son of Rabbi Rose and a rich tradition. And I loved your book for that reason. But you also taught me about Rose Hospital, where not only was I born, but my mother was a volunteer there. And all my siblings were born there. And both my boys were born there. So that hospital is a big part of my life. And it's not just any hospital. It broke a lot of barriers in Colorado. Tell everybody about that. Well, those of us that lived in the 60s know that Rachel Knoll was the first African-American to be elected to an office in Colorado. And this lovely lady was elected to the Denver School Board, which was the first elected official of African-American descent. Her husband, Dr. Edmund Knoll, was a captain in the army as a doctor, and he got out of the service, and in the Five Points area was a community leader of African-American descent named Sonny Lawson, and he had a drugstore in the Five Points area, and he got a, a hold of Captain Edmund Knoll, the husband of Rachel Knoll, and said, why don't you come to Denver, because I think Rose Hospital which is a Jewish hospital, uh, will hire you. And even though the Denver Medical Society will not allow African-Americans to be licensed to practice in hospitals, the Denver Jewish community leaders will waive that and make sure that you become a doctor on staff at the hospital. Sure enough, Edmund Knoll came to Denver, lived upstairs in the drugstore where Sonny Lawson had his business downstairs, and he became the first African-American doctor to be on staff of a hospital in Colorado, thanks to the leadership. And after that, of course, everything changed and all this fell apart and people of different races became 
on staff of the hospitals in Denver. The Rose Hospital set the standard and the legacy of General Rose lives on to the point that in November of 2019, we rescued the painting of Rose, put it back in the hospital in the lobby, and we honored Dr. Edmund Knoll and his son came, who's a lawyer in Denver, and we had the family and, and Judge Jackson, and we revitalized the legacy of Rose and the importance of the black community having their Dr. Edmund Knoll on the staff of the hospital back in the 40s. How cool is that? And Sonny Lawson Field now at 23rd and Walton, where countless interesting softball games have been played. You are really something. And as a historian, you are remarkable. We could spend hours on your incredible legal career, but I wonder if you were like me. I was a prosecutor in the Denver DA's office. I made enough to get by, but I wasn't really thinking about money. I was just thinking about doing a good job, trying to make right decisions, bring justice to bad situations. But then when you leave the DA's office, it occurs to most people, hey, I might want to get married, raise kids. Maybe I should focus on making money. Did you have an epiphany like that when you left the employee of the Denver DA's office? Well, I had a lot of high-profile cases. I tried the Denver Mafia case, the Denver 14, which is similar to the Chicago 7, and I represented Father Martin Schenko, who ended up in Lebanon as a prisoner and got freed by President Nixon, and he was a national figure. But that's another time for another story. No, no, let's not blow by your legal career. If you had two or three cases that you'd like to be remembered for, what are they? Were they as a prosecutor or other things you've done? Well, as a prosecutor, one of the things that I'm proud of is that this they were sending a lot of kids that were smoking marijuana to reform school and to the penitentiary for smoking a marijuana cigarette. And these were younger people that had never been in trouble. Most of them were of Mexican-American descent, and they would always deny them probation. I thought that even back in the 60s was wrong. You're going to ruin a kid's life. And most of these kids were Mexican-Americans in Denver, and they were young, and they went to Manual and West High School. And I, I would go to the court and tell them to put them on probation. I just didn't think that was right to ruin their lives. So even then, I thought, you know, that there was it was wrong to do that. Thanks for doing that. You were right. They were wrong, obviously. Way to go. Well, I fought them. You know, I was got to remember, I'm 25 years old doing this stuff, you know, making a difference because I just didn't believe that you should be doing that to people. And then, you know, as a DA, and you can imagine this, I had a woman accuse a young country boy of raping her. As a DA, you got to find out if she's telling the truth. So there were times when people that claimed to be victims were lying. And you, you have a responsibility as a DA, you know, to seek the truth. And I had a rape case where the, this woman was lying about this person. She's a young country boy, a farm kid. And after I talked to her, and confronted her, she admitted she was lying. So as a prosecutor, you have a dual duty. Convict the bad people and be careful about the accusation itself. If I could, was that lady lying about 
the dirty deed happening or the dirty yeah. deed was not so dirty because she had consented to it. She never had any sex with her. She lied. She was crazy. But she, her story sounded pretty good until it made no sense. You know, she, you, you, you got to have an experience to understand, you know, when people are telling the truth or not. And, you know, we're dealing with this today with, with this whole business of Kumo and Kavanaugh. I mean, you got to be careful with and understand there is a presumption of innocence. People have a right to due process. Prosecutors have the duty to look for the truth. And I think we've lost our way in some of this stuff. Well, it's a controversial topic. And I got in some trouble for saying that any experienced big city prosecutor or detective will tell you that there are a percentage of sex assault allegations that are just not true. Like the case you were talking about, it doesn't mean all allegations shouldn't be taken seriously. We've seen the pendulum swing back and forth, but I brought that up in the context of the late Kobe Bryant saying, hey, you know, you've got to give him a chance too. And as a prosecutor, you can do more for somebody who's innocent than really his own lawyer can do. If you take it seriously, your responsibility, and I know you did, Marshall. Well, some cases are open and shut, you know. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming, but those cases that are, are equivocal, you as a prosecutor have the moral responsibility and the professional responsibility to investigate and to be careful with people's lives. I, as a prosecutor, prosecute people that are downright guilty. There's no question about it. But then there are cases where there are defenses and you've got to look at those. I don't, I, I think today, I don't, not sure if we teach people on both sides of the fence and in the criminal law to have respect for the truth. And I think it becomes a problem. And I think the example that we're setting today with some of these people, they're ignoring the responsibility of the constitutional protections and to give everybody a chance to be heard. But that's just my opinion. That's all. But the great thing is that when you were making that decision, so critical to a lot of people's lives, you weren't doing it based on money or I'm going to make this on that or a prosecutor doesn't think that way. And I loved it when there was a terrible, violent crime and I would go to the family. Not that I loved that experience of their heartbreak, but to say, I'm here to help and I'm going to try to bring you some measure of justice and you don't owe me a penny. I get paid by the government to do this and I'm really here to help you. So. I like that. And for 16 years, I was prosecutor. And then when I left prosecution, I suddenly had to confront the realization, hey, I just got married. I'm going to start a family. Now I have to go into the business of being a lawyer a bit. And how long were you a prosecutor, Marshall? I was a prosecutor from the age of 24 to 27 and a half. And, and I was fortunate enough in those days to be able to get in district court and try heavy-duty cases early on. And by the time I was 27 and a half, I knew that I had created what I needed to do to get out. Uh, I'm only making 14 grand a year. That was 2,000 more than a district court judge because we were paid by the city. 
and the judges are paid by the state. But I had to move on because even though I wanted to be a professional prosecutor, I wanted to have a family and I didn't want to live on the edge. So I had a choice. I could either go with a silk stocking firm or I could be a contingency lawyer and help people that really need a lawyer. Like I, I probably over my 50 years, I had over 23,000 cases of helping people that needed help because they didn't have the power that I could bring as a lawyer. So I represented a lot of unions, a lot of first responders, a lot of people in unions and laborers and poor people and police officers. And, you know, I have a lot of, I helped a lot of families of law enforcement and first responders. And fortunately, I had a pretty successful career in a great law firm and we did well. But I also feel rewarded that I was able to make a difference in people's lives. And that's what a lawyer ought to be doing, is to make a difference in people's lives. And I loved the people I represented. Wow. What a great career you've had in the law. And along the way, you accumulated some assets. And then once you do that, you have to decide, what am I going to do with my money? How will I invest it? Will I be conservative? Will I be adventuresome? How did you approach that subject, Marshall, now that you're an elder statesman? What advice can you give to people? Well, I came from a family where I had to make it on my own. And I I really believe in life. You shouldn't be given anything. If you're healthy and you got a brain and you got an IQ over room temperature, you have an obligation to take advantage of opportunity, no matter who you are or where you come from or what your race is. You get off your butt and go to work. And if you want to work hard, you'll make it. And, you know, I I started out with $200, a broken down car, and I lived in an apartment on a guy's couch until I got a job. You know, I didn't feel sorry for myself. I didn't want anything from anybody. I didn't ask my parents to help me. Because I was raised like you were. You're self-reliant. You have an obligation to make it on your own. And that was the force and energy that gave me the opportunity that I knew that I wanted to become somebody successful, not only in, in helping people, but I wanted to make money. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to have a good life. I wanted to raise uh, my kids in an atmosphere that they had more than I did. And so I started this law firm, Fogel, Keating, and Wagner, after I was with a partner for a while. And, you know, we built a practice that I'm very proud of at the time. And then I got involved in investing in, in sports memorabilia. And that's a whole story if you want to talk about it. What year? That's what we're going to talk about because the theme of our show is collector's items. How do you know what to collect and why? How did you make the decision to go into the sports memorabilia world? Well, as a child, like a lot of us in our generation, we collected baseball cards and we'd flip them against the wall and see how close we could flip them to the wall. And we'd put them on our bicycle spokes to make noise and we traded them. And so this is going back to say, 1952, 1953, where you could go to a 
a store called Candyland. It was a little candy store, and you'd buy baseball cards for a nickel. Where was Candyland at? 23rd and Camaria. Nice. There's still a little shopping center there, I think. Yeah. It was Candyland, and they had the first grocery store that was a major change called Busley Brothers, where they actually was a supermarket. Because uh, before then, you had Piggly Wiggly and some of the smaller stores. But this was the first store that kind of resembled what King Supers and Safeway became today. And they had the Tower Theater where, you know, you could go to a movie for a dime, buy a Hershey bar for a nickel, go to the drugstore for a Green River, which was uh, lime syrup with carbonated water, buy a comic book for a nickel, and you spend a quarter for the whole day. How much were the baseball cards back in those days? A nickel a pack. And do you remember what came? How many cards? And wasn't there a stick of gum, too? Yeah, if you chewed the gum, your teeth would fall out. It was horrible. Right. But you still did it. I did, anyway. Yeah. So back around 1989, I heard there was a national sports convention in Chicago. And over the years, I'd, you know, I'd buy a few card sets and nothing big. It wasn't anything but a little hobby of mine. And then I went to the sports convention and I got hooked. You know, I, you know, Mickey Mantle, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Hank Greenberg, Sandy Colfax, Yogi Berra, you know, these are all my heroes. And so I started collecting baseball cards. This first convention, did you know you were going to spend money? Did you spend money at the convention purchasing things? I went nuts. I loved it. I got hooked. How much did you spend if I can be so bold? Probably $10,000. Did you go prepared to spend that much or were you surprising yourself? Surprised myself. And then I, you know, it was a kind of a hobby, having a little bit of fun, you know, and maybe, you know, I, because I, I knew these players, Bob Feller and Stuke Snyder and all these people who meant something to me. I grew up with these guys, Gil Hodges. And then I got involved more and more. And then what happened, Craig, is when the internet came about, that's when things changed. Right now, to give you the end of the story, and we can fill it in with your questions, you, Mickey Mantle cards, they grade them one through 10. Eight is near mint to mint. Nine is mint. 10 is gem mint. A Mickey Mantle 52 Tops card is the number one card in the, in the in this industry. In an eight, it just sold for $1.3 million. A nine in Mickey Mantle, which is mint, sold for $5.1 million. I'm fortunate to have the Holy Grail, which is a gem mint mantle and a 10. Michael Jordan cards can sell for as much as a half a million dollars now. Hank Aaron in a rookie card in a nine just sold for $675,000. Nobody in their wildest dreams could ever believe that these penny cards of people that are deceased are selling for that kind of money. And baseball is still the king because there's something about baseball that is magic. And that is, it's the only game of a singular hero. When you, people remember Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs, Mickey Mantle. They don't remember Sid Luckman, and they're not going to remember John Havlicek in basketball or Bob Pettit. I do. 
Well, but their stuff doesn't sell. I will get to basketball because maybe the world is changing, but I want to know about Mickey Mantle, 1952 rookie card. How did you get it? It's not his rookie card. The rookie card is a 1951 Bowman baseball gum card, but it's more of a painting. It's not a photograph. In 1952, Topps was the first to make photographs and put them on baseball cards. So it's iconic the 52, and it's card number 311. And the Mantle 52 Tops card in high-end condition sells for a ton of money. It's a number one card. If you own, uh, even if you own one that's a truck ran over When did it, you acquire it? 1996. Wow. And did you reach deeper than you thought you were going to have to, or did you get it steal? Well, when I bought it, the, the hobby news called me stupid, and now they call me wisely eccentric. Well, you already said what it's worth now. Can we ask what you paid for it? $121,000. Oh, my God. Which was the highest ever paid for a baseball card at the time. Well, I made the right call. I rolled the dice. I did, you know, I could have lost everything over it, but, you know, life is luck. Isn't Who did you it? buy Sometimes it from? in an auction. You don't know the schmuck who put it up for auction? Well, there was a guy who was an architect that owned a 52 top set. And that card was in it before that grading services to grade it a 10. And it ended up in Wolfer's auction in San Francisco, the whole set. And the architect wanted to sell it and he wanted 250000 for the entire set. It was a great card collection. The set has 407 cards in it. And it didn't sell. So it all got broken up. And David Hall, who owns Collector's Universe, which grades cards now called PSA, bought the card and put it up for auction. And it was at an auction in 1996. And we were on the phone me and I ended up with the card at 121000 which is more than I ever thought I would spend. But I figured I could sell some things to pay for the card. And that's how I took the chance, because I always thought Mantle would be the king of baseball cards someday, surpassing the Wagner, famous Wagner card that was made in 1909. And sure enough, it turns out I was right. So... Are you going to go to the grave with that card? Or what are the plans? How many times have you thought about selling it? And if somebody offered you the right price, would you sell it? Well, that's the issue. You know, I have a pretty sizable collection. Exhibited Yankee Stadium in their museum for 10 years now. I've had my collection in the Playball exhibit at the Carter History Museum. My parts of my collection have been in the Denver Art Museum. And at the time... Rec the Van Robinson set a record for for the collection being on exhibit, which has been surpassed since then. But the Colorado History Museum in 2018 set a record for attendance of 150,000 people came to see the exhibit. And I'm working with Ken Monford, who's, by the way, is a terrific guy, a wonderful person. And he's got a space for a 20,000 square foot museum that I've been trying to help him with that. At that so, new McGregor Square? 
yes. And he's really dedicated to making a wonderful museum. Uh, you know, I can tell you, if you know Ken Monford, regardless of the publicity, there's no better guy in the world than he is. He's, he cares about his team. He cares about the city. He cares about the, the Rockies. And, you know, he's uh, struggling a little right, bit now. But he's but letting it, Dick Monford it, run the team. I bet he likes horses like you, right? I don't know what his hobbies he's are. He's a horseman. You guys all stick together. and But the answer about the baseball cards, if I'm reading it right, is... No, you're not going to sell because you're touring the world and you're the owner of one of the greatest baseball card collections ever. And why would you give that up? Well, I have other things. You know, I got like Lou Gehrig's bat and sign, and I've got I've got wonderful items that I like to display. I like to share my collection with the public. But you know, there's an end of life, and and I'd love to be able to. I eventually probably have to sell it. And like everything else, you know, you, you want to take care of your children and and have make sure that they have an interest in, in a good life. And you know, all things come to an end, Craig. You know. No, uh, I understand. But you're you're a young kid. Let me ask you this: When you collected those cards from Candyland at Twenty Third and Cromeria, did any of your own cards ever survive? to be of value, or were they all screwed up by the spokes of your bicycle? Well, they were not in condition because I played with them a lot, but my mother never threw them away, so I had them when I was an adult and basically sold them off because they were not in the condition that I would have liked to have cars that I own today. Uh, but, you know, there's a side story to this whole thing. I, I've had the pleasure of spending time with Mickey Mantle Blanchard, Larry Walker, Terry Banks stayed at my house, Gil McDougall from the Yankees, Ryan Duran, Bob Gibson, uh, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron. I, the list goes on. I Raleigh Fingers. You know, I've met all these people, so uh, I know them, and, and I can't tell you what a reward that is to be able to meet guys like Duke Snyder, and, and the list goes on. So it's not just the ability to collect this, these items, but it's the backstory, you know, meeting the players and being involved with the Yankees. And I, you know, that's been a great experience dealing with them and dealing with the, from the Rockies and exhibiting and letting the public see my collection. And I've met so many, I've had people see my collection, uh, governors of the state of Colorado, mayors, uh, regular people. You know, it's just, Life experience for me that's been an A+. plus. No kidding. I didn't know Ernie Banks spent a night at your house. Why not, too? You remember Ernie. always wanted to play, too. But he must have been a great guy for you to know him well enough that he stayed at your house. Well, it was Gil McDougal stayed in my house. But Ernie Banks, I was his host at the time. They honored Jackie Robinson and retired his number at the Rockies. And Ernie and I had lunch together. I took him to the DAC for a steam bath, which we call a Schwitz. And, uh, you know, he's, what do I think of him? He's a hell of a great guy. He's uh, personable and friendly and just a lot to be with, you know. And when you talk, I've had Don Larson at my house, but one of the 
no-hitter in 1956. He only played a no-hitter in a World Series. Johnny Blanchard, who was the roommate of Mantle. I mean, I, I could tell you stories about these guys and their days as a player that have knocked their socks off. Wonderful stories. Unbelievable. The life you have led. Do you show them all their own baseball cards? Are they interested in that? Like when you have Ernie Banks over, do you say, here, I've got an Ernie Banks from 1964. It's worth $12,000. I mean, do you show them anything like that? Well, you know, when the players come to see the collection, you know, it's, it's not always at my house. You know, I, I keep it in a safe place, but I had Ernie sign his back. Most of the players take it a little bit for granted. You know, they're, they're not as interested as you think. I had Larry Walker here and, and uh, I, Larry, Larry's, I used to kid him. I said, you know, when you walk into a room, you've got to turn sideways. I mean, this guy's enormous, a natural hitter. And loved motorcycles, you know, that's how I met him. So Dermot Cop brought him uh, to me to see the collection. And overall, you know, they get a kick out of it. You have made such a mark in baseball collectibles and memorabilia. But what is going on during the pandemic with collectibles is really extraordinary. And now there are new products called non-fungible tokens. I'm sure you've heard about it, Marshall. I don't know if you participate. Tell us about your world of collectibles during the pandemic and what you know about this next generation of collectibles. Well, the answer is simply this, that collectibles in the sports industry is now an industry as well as, as a hobby. You know, if you have $500 or $100, you can, you can enjoy collecting. But it, now it's become an investment portfolio. And what's happened is because basketball is a worldwide sport, baseball, football, soccer, hockey, the collecting of sport cards and memorabilia is worldwide. Uh, in China, for instance, American basketball is a big deal. And all over the world, uh, people who Babe Ruth is. So you're competing in the market for high-end products with hedge fund people. You know, there's, there's a lot of people between the ages of 35 and 50, these millenniums, that have made a fortune. And it's not a large percentage, but they're really into the sports collecting. So competition to collect high-end material is becoming expensive. You know, cars selling for 500000 600000 200000 is not unusual anymore. So it's great for guys like you because it just drives up the price of your assets, which is a physical card. And for it to be in perfect mint condition, I'm sure you take all the precautions. You could give us all the details. I'm wondering, in all your sports memorabilia adventures, there has to have been anxiety, maybe losses when cards get damaged or they don't show up. You have to get insurance. You have to trust this guy, that guy. You have to worry about a ripoff. With these new products that are all digital, they eliminate that is that attractive to you or do you have horror stories about sports deals gone wrong well you got if i were to advise a serious collector 
there are a lot of rocks in the road. You know, there are a lot, there's a lot of items out there that are fake, fraudulent. There are a lot of fraudulent autographs. So if you're in the money, you better educate yourself. As far as my collection is concerned, uh, I'm going to give a lot of it to charity uh, on my passing. I'm a very big advocate of Hollywood's Homeless Shelter, the Denver Police Officers Foundation, the Fraternal Order Police, Greenspeace. I mean, I have a lot of charities. I, I want to give my money away. The good Lord told me that I can't take it with me. And I'm, of course, take care of my children and my grandchildren. But, you know, we only rent life. We don't own it. And we only rent what we have in possessions. And if you're going to value who you are, you got to give it away. You know, you're not going to take it with you. And so if you accumulate wealth, you need to learn to have grace. You take other people you better need and i think that's my goal in in my later life as it is is to make other people happy and to help those in need and that's what i'm going to do with the proceeds of my collection beyond helping my family is to get away i think i've started to have you figured out marshall fogel first of all i admire what you've done with your life but the same guy who was standing in the courthouse making arguments in all those murder cases, you have a little bit of exhibitionism in you, just like most trial attorneys do, just like I do. But you have taken a step into the sports world. You've got great products and memorabilia that people, when they look at it, they have a smile on their face. And again, you were making a presentation, I think, in downtown Denver when you had that historic run at the Colorado History Museum. You get a kick out of that. You're an entertainer. You're a performer. You like to put a smile on people's faces, don't you? Well, let me, let me give you the same compliment. You know, I've known you for many years, and I, I have to say you deserve this from me. And that is that your programs are great. You help people understand issues. You deal with important facts. And I think you have a following that you well deserve. Uh, that's so nice of you. But I collect the baseball cards with my brother. We built on our uncle's collection. And it gets passed down to nephews and nieces. And it's interesting to try to figure out who owns what. Now my boys are searching their old Pokemon cards because those things are suddenly valuable. I bet there have been some incredible family fights when it comes to baseball card collections. Am I right? Yeah, and, and uh, dealing with Pokemon, there are Pokemon cards that sell for half a million dollars now. If you buy, if you've got the set from 1999 when it first got started, some of those cards are selling for six figures right now. Oh my gosh. That's why I got to go. I got to start looking through my kids' drawers. I'm telling you, we had Pokemon cards everywhere. Who knew? Can you look into the future? What would you tell people to invest in today? My view of it is that when this pandemic ends, the economy in the United States is going to be on fire. I really believe that when the business is open, people are so frustrated and so pent up and willing to go out and spend money, I, I think there's a bright future for this country. And, and people are really into nostalgia. 
the thing about baseball, and I'll, I'll say this to your listeners, is it's special among any other sport because it's the it's the story of the singular hero. No other sport has a person gets up to the plate, and there are nine players on the other side who are your enemies. And people remember Roos home run and Maris's 61 home runs and Willie Mays. And it's a place where you can take your kid and he has his glove and he hopes to catch a foul ball. It's a different, different genre when you take your kid to a baseball game. There's this sort of a gentleness to it. The field is perfect. You go to a football game, man, I mean, it's like maniacs, you know, <laughs> they're crazy. So, there isn't a kid in the world. You know how I just define baseball is when your dad plays catch with you and you're a kid. You always remember it. You'll always remember it. It's so special. And I think that's what generates such an interest in these players and their careers and their personalities is it's the game of the singular hero. It's the kid playing catch with his dad. It's the field of dreams at the end of the game and the end of the movie, The Natural. What do you think's going on at the end of those movies? They're, they're playing catch with their son. And that's what it's really all about. It's that simple and that important. You're giving me chills. I, I love the game of catch. You've distilled it down. Because you are brilliant, Marshall Fogel. This is the definitive Marshall Fogel interview, even though we could do it for another six hours. But I do need to start looking for those Pokemon cards now that you tell me it's worth all that much. And I think as the father, if I paid for them, anyway, I I'm going to have to get a lawyer. I'm not going to bother you. You're too expensive anyway. Marshall, I cannot thank you enough. It's thrilling to know you, to call you a friend. And your success in the sports memorabilia world, it's amazing. Is there anybody better than you? Anybody more renowned in the sports memorabilia world? No, but I want to end by this because you deserve an equal compliment. You are a great advocate, a wonderful friend, and a hell of a lawyer. And you've made a difference in people's lives. And I have a lot of respect for you as a dear and an everlasting friend. Well, thanks, Marshall. What a great honor it is to have you back in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Have a great day. Have a great day. Bye-bye. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways and not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, what? But let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well. If you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes, 
well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done, and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. My gosh, what a show I've got going. It was anchored around Marshall Fogel a legendary collector of sports memorabilia. And then I got to thinking about, wow, there's a boom in this world. And now it's going to new products that I don't know a lot about, but I know a lot of people. And I got connected to a guy who I'm going to call a smarter than average Joe. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Now, by way of introduction, you're a working man, you're a family man, you're about a little shy of your 40th birthday, but you are a different generation than me and one who understands cryptocurrencies and now a brand new world called non-fungible tokens. Joe, are you the guy to talk to? Am I the guy to talk to? Well, I'm the guy talking to you right now, so I guess so. I guess I'm the guy to talk to. Just tell us how you got attracted to the world of Bitcoin and latest wave investment opportunities. Sure. Years ago, you know, to go all the way back in like 2012, a buddy of mine and I were using a GPU to mine Bitcoin on a personal computer. What is GPU? You lost me right there. It's basically a graphics card. People are using it for gaming. And years ago, you could use it. Enough computing power to actually mine Bitcoin. That is probably a whole other show in itself. But were you a gamer? Were you a sophisticate when it came to computer stuff? Better than the average Joe? Uh, I would actually say no. I'm not a huge gamer. I haven't played a video game in years. I mean, I'm in my late 30s, so I've had... A lot of access to computers. My first Tandy computer when I was in like eighth grade, I think my mom got a garage sale for us. So, you know, I had some fun with it, but my day job doesn't have anything to do with computers. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a sales guy at heart, and that's what I do in my day job. But, you know, technology is something that's always interested me. So, in, actually, a roommate of mine in 2012 was a computer science major. We were living together. He told me about the magic internet money. I'm like, this sounds ridiculous. I was like, coin? I was like, is that even how you say it? He's like, yeah, if we spend a few hundred bucks, we get a, a graphics card, we could mine it, and we could maybe save a few, and it might be the currency of the future. I like laughed at him. <laughs> I was like, Craig, I was like, okay, nice try. 
Uh, a few weeks later, he convinced me we mined a few Bitcoin. We had some success with it. We did what a lot of people did in the early days. We didn't save it properly, and we lost those forever. Nothing financially really ever came of it for us. Until a few years ago, I had somebody reach out to me about an online sports book, and they were like, hey, do you know anything about Bitcoin? I'm like, believe it or not, I know a little bit. I told him what I knew, and I was like, man, how's it changed? I was like, how much is it per coin anyways? And at that time, it was like three or $4,000, I think, Greg. And I was like, uh, when I had this, it was like $12. So I went down the rabbit hole, and I went down deep, pretty much grabbing all sorts of information I could, trying to wrap my head around Bitcoin. Why was it going up? Why was it appreciating? What was so unique about it? What was blockchain? What were all these keywords I I was hearing so a uh, few years of making a lot of mistakes, but from 2017 to now, I was buying portions of Bitcoin, portions of Ethereum. I even bought some shit coins, I call them. They're like other cryptocurrencies that don't have the best utility, but I'm a big Bitcoin and Ethereum fan. And then recently, similar to my Bitcoin story, I discovered uh, NFTs. You mentioned non-fungible tokens. All right, let's back up a little bit for all timers like me. Can you explain to me what Bitcoin is? What is it based on? Where does the value come from? That's a great question. So Bitcoin is essentially a digital ledger on the blockchain. There's only 21 million that will ever be released, individual Bitcoins. Those can be broken down into something called SATs or Satoshis. In 2009, it was Bitcoin white paper, peer-to-peer monetary system was written. Essentially, it is a peer-to-peer monetary system. Who came up with the rules about the limited distribution? Do you know? So the original Satoshi was, we don't know if he was a man, a woman, a group of people. Nobody really knows. He, she, they worked with several developers in the early stages of Bitcoin. When they wrote the code for Bitcoin, there were certain times when there's 21 million ever, and they're supposed to be released at certain points throughout Bitcoin's lifetime. And essentially, since then, Satoshi has fallen off the face of the earth. Nobody really knows who they are. So there's actually coins in Satoshi's wallet that were originally moved that have never moved since then. So it's actually 1 million Bitcoin is in Satoshi's wallet. You can openly see that on the blockchain. You can see movements in and out. And ever since they moved in, they've never moved out. People have speculated that Satoshi may have passed away. Satoshi didn't like how things were going. Satoshi just took a step back because Bitcoin was moving forward in the vision they, they envisioned, essentially. So the best way I look at Bitcoin is a store of value. And when you think about a store value, a lot of people compare Bitcoin to gold and call Bitcoin digital gold. At the end of the day, gold is used for a lot. Gold's a great investment. It's a great hedge against cash, especially in this day and age when we're printing more money, we're overextending ourselves as a country, as a world. So precious metals and really anything other than the USD makes a lot of sense. So when you have something as scarce, only 21 million ever, it's going to naturally appreciate because no one can create anymore. So who gives Bitcoin value? Pretty much the people who buy it. It's a supply and demand right. thing, just like gold. It's a market. It's a market. It's, a, it's another market. You have cash, stocks, bonds, and pretty much gold or precious metals. And I look at Bitcoin as another asset class. I look at it in the future 
taking on gold. You know, gold is a $10 trillion market cap. Right now, Bitcoin is changes every day because it's very volatile, but it's a little under a trillion dollar market cap or about a trillion dollar market cap. You'll see the, you'll see gold's market cap shrink and you'll see Bitcoin's increase. The great thing about Bitcoin is it's very similar to digital gold. Let's say you wanted to invest a whole bunch of money into gold. You're not going to keep it under your bed. <laughs> you know, you have like millions of dollars of gold. You vault it, you pay vaulting fees. You don't get to go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee with gold. You know, get like, oh, what is it, three dollars for the vente, and start chipping off gold chips? No, it's a store of value. You put your money into gold because you you assume it's naturally a hedge against cash. We use a small percentage of it for jewelry. It's a good conductor and things along those lines. But at the end of the day, it's a store of value. Bitcoin is very similar, but it's digital. It's great. I could send ten thousand dollars to you, Craig, right now. Uh, Friday evening without even thinking twice. I don't have to go to the bank. I don't have to have anybody notarize anything. I don't Please have... do. In fact, that's customary for all my guests, but it's 20000 <laughs> if you're anonymous. So it's even better. But I think I'm starting to get it because it's supply and demand. And gold, you know, you can say, well, it's a precious metal. Precious for what? For jewelry, as you put it. But we could get along without gold, but it has a luster. It has a value that people throughout time, they've paid for it. And now we're moving on to NFTs. And I've learned so much just in the last week. I'm a huge basketball fan. But before my nephew, Charlie, said, hey, if you're going to talk to Marshall Fogel about baseball cards, you need to know about nifties. You need to know about NBA Top Shots. <laughs> and there I was doing my cruise of Colorado, and I I said, I don't know anything. I read articles. I talked to friends. I got connected to Smarter Than Average Joe. Tell us what you know about NBA Top Shots, and am I too late? Is my audience too late, or is this bubble just starting to expand? Well, I don't personally believe it's a bubble because we're at – I, when I say we, I don't work for the company or any, any involvement with Top Shot at all. I, I am an investor. I'll, I'll disclose that. I own some moments, and I, I really enjoy it. And I was an average NBA fan, and ever since I got into Top Shot, I've become like a, a huge NBA fan. I'm watching more games than I ever could ever imagine. I feel like when I buy an NBA Top Shot moment, I almost feel like I'm buying a share in that player's career. But at the nut and bolts of things is – it's an NFT. It stands for a non-fungible token. And everybody everybody hears non-fungible token. They're like, uh, what is that? Or they hear NFT. They're like, I never heard of it. It's very similar to how we looked at probably MP3s years ago. And I always like to go back to analog has never beaten anything in digital ever. As much as we want to hold on to that, it, it's it's true. And I, I don't like change. I'm, I'm one of the biggest persons that I don't like a lot of change. So for me to gravitate for more and more digital surprises me, but I enjoy it. And it's becoming easier, more simple, more liquid. But analog, uh, it, it, think of it as uh, we used to send letters. Now we send emails. I mean, we still send letters, but if you get a handwritten letter from someone, you love it. You're like, I can't believe somebody spent that much time to write this whole thing out when they could have sent me an email. But really, at the end of the day, 95% Maybe you of you don't get letters from other lawyers like I do. Anyway, back to normal <laughs> letter writing. 
Yeah, so so 95% of communication uh, compared to uh, mail and email is done email. When you're taking pictures, disposable cameras are no longer a thing. Obviously, I used to have a Polaroid when I was a kid. It's no longer a thing. We use cameras we don't we can't hold the picture everyone wants to like i can't hold the bitcoin i can't hold the moment you can't hold the picture that you took on your digital camera but you know what you could do you could take two thousand of them and store them on a little memory card in a small camera and it's obviously the digital aspect took over all right back to basketball let me just tell you my crude understanding after two days of study on the road and you tell me where i'm wrong but i used to buy baseball cards back in the day and marshall fogel was just telling us that back in his day it would cost a nickel you'd get five or ten cards and a piece of hard chewing gum and that's how you spent your money and then if you were wise you kept them in mint condition and you became a baseball card billionaire like Marshall Fogel. But now I understand that the NBA, through Commissioner Adam Silver and the Players Association, has said, we're not going to release old-style basketball cards. Maybe they still do that, but we're going to put out videos. We're going to bunch them together, and they're going to get unique packaging and we're going to offer it at a common sale for like $9.99 a pack. And maybe you're going to get a great video clip. Maybe you won't. Sometimes you open it up and it's a dud. Other times you have great possibilities, some of your favorite players. Then they created other markets, which are not blind draws where people can bid on things. And it's all controlled by a website and a common exchange. Am I close to being right about any of this? Yeah, of course you are. You have a great grasp of what NBA Top Shot is. NBA Top Shot is an online company launched by a Vancouver-based blockchain company called Dapper Labs, and it's backed by the NBA. Uh, the NBA is fully backing this. They get royalties from this. They're involved. They just released their young all-stars roster it was yesterday or two days ago through NBA Top Shot, <laughs> it's, which is really amazing. It's their biggest promotional weekend with the All-Star Game. Mm -hmm. This is with their authorization, but tell me, is there a blind pack of cards that you buy? Have you bought it? Tell us how you dipped your toe into it. So I, I was told about NBA Top Shot. I, I thought I was late to the game a couple a few months ago. And uh, a couple buddies of mine were like, so I was into sports cards, just like uh, Mr. Fogel. I, I think sports cards are awesome. But one thing about sports cards that was always difficult is I would, I would buy, a, let's say, a raw Tiger Woods rookie card. I was buying these right around the Masters times, raw Tiger Woods rookie cards through eBay. I'm hoping on eBay that they're authentic. I think they are. And to authenticate them, to grade them, I have to send them to PSA. I have to send them to Beckett. That's going to take six months, eight months. I, I, it's going to take a while. I get it back after I pay for it. I have to list it on eBay. I send it out to the user. That's the sales cycle. With NBA Top Shot, it allows users to procure a collection of digital basketball highlights. And you can show them off to other collectors. And there's an open marketplace where you can actually sell these moments. They're scarce. There's not. They just can't just print them like we print the U.S. dollar. So the first series, obviously, there was, let's say, 5,000 users. You know, there was only a, a few hundred to a thousand for the base series of the initial top shot. 
you know, there wasn't that many users. They were in beta. They were trying to grow the platform. I got on a little bit after that, and I was like, hey, I can buy a pack. Just packs were online. They were $9. So I bought a pack, get three common cards. I could get a LeBron. I could get a Steph Curry, or I could get just some three no-names that are worth nothing. So I bought my first pack and I pulled, uh, I remember I pulled like a, a LeBron and, and like a, maybe a job or on and uh, somebody else. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I looked how much the LeBron was worth and I was like, I paid $9 for the card. I mean, for the pack. I was like, oh, this LeBron selling for like $50, $80. I was like, that's really cool. I'm going to hold on to it. And users started growing, growing, growing. Now, on uh Fortunately and unfortunately, there's, I don't know, probably between 100,000 and 200,000 users on NBA Top Shot. They would give you a better idea. But they can't even keep packs in stock right now because when they go up, they sell immediately. So they have all these different systems in place. But when I really got into the NBA Top Shot, I was like, what are these video clips? I could watch a video clip of LeBron James doing the tribute dunk on YouTube for free. Why do I want to buy it? But it's very similar to... You can buy a Michael Jordan 1986 Fleer rookie card, or you could buy the replica. There's the replica. It looks exactly the same. You could hang it up on your wall. You could tell all your friends, I have a Jordan card. But at the end of the day, when it gets graded, that's not real. That's not, it's a replica, and it's not worth the same value. Same thing with Top Shot. You can watch this video clip. You can watch the full game on YouTube all you want. But these moments are on the blockchain licensed by the NBA, and they have turned into collectibles. And you may ask, like, who determines the price? Well, I guess the market determines the price. But that same LeBron that I pulled from a pack, I think it's, like, selling for, like, $1,800 right now. Oh, my gosh. Well, you have a ways to go to reach Marshall Fogel's 52 Mickey Mantle card, which has become (laughs) the greatest baseball card ever. (laughs) But you never know. LeBron... And certainly, you know, in the conversation for the greatest basketball player ever, you said you were not that big of a hoops fan, but you are now with NBA Top Shots. Why is that? Because I'm like, I'm buying stock in these players, these young guys. I bought bought LaMelo Ball's rookie card for like 400, or not rookie card, sorry, (laughs) NBA Top Shot moment when it was first released. And I bought a minted number. I think there's like, 4,000 of them. I bought like number 1,600 or something along those lines for like $400. Uh, The player's jersey number or maybe the first mint or the lower the mint, typically the more value it's worth. You know, like a LeBron James moment minted number 23 is worth much more than number 642 because it's his jersey number. So when I bought when I bought this Lamelo, uh, it was like four hundred dollars. I was like, this seems like a lot of money. And let me stop you there. Was that just a sticker on the asking price, or was it an auction? So you can get that card in a pack, and then if you get it in a pack, you can list it on an open free marketplace, an open marketplace on on nbatopshot.com. And it was basically the lowest price available was maybe. Three hundred eighty dollars, uh, but maybe that mint was a little higher. It was like three thousand three hundred. So I scanned up, and I was like, you know, I'm more comfortable with a little lower mint, and I'll pay a little bit more money. That card now is worth like four thousand dollars, which blows my mind. Or that that moment is worth like four thousand dollars. I ten x that moment in a few weeks. 
And now I watch LaMelo Ball. I'm looking him up on Twitter. I'm asking other basketball fans, who's the next rising star? You know, hey, what do you think of this guy? What that guy? I'm like tuning into NBA, uh, you know, all day, every day. Just So the NFT correlates with the success of the player like the Joker, who should be MVP. We agree with that, right? Smarter than average Joe. I recently purchased his Western Conference Finals moment. Very excited about that for like $800, and I think it's up to like $2,800. Oh, my gosh. When did you buy it? How long did it take you to make $2,000 on the Joker? That was a couple weeks ago because he's really started to make some serious waves. It's literally, Craig, it's like buying stock in an NBA player. I know, but this is a stock that goes through the roof. You don't have many triples in the stock market. I expect you do play the stock market a bit. Is it the same thing? Or I don't play the stock market you know. that much. <laughs> I don't. I am a, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, and that's a whole other segment where I could get deep into that. I'm a big believer in Bitcoin. I think it's a great hedge against cash. I think it makes a ton of sense for companies to put on their balance sheet. I think Bitcoin is one of the best buys of our lifetime. Oh and, and I've been preaching that for years. And I it's don't not think too it's, late? It's not too late? No. It's a $1 trillion market cap. It's, it's a tenth of gold, which what are we going to do with gold? Like if I wanted to send a million dollars to somebody, I could do it instantly with Bitcoin with a transaction fee, and it would, it would be there in under 10 minutes. It would be there so quick. <laughs> I've got to tell you, Joe, sometimes I can wrap my mind around it. Like if you buy gold, you don't hold the gold. You own an account number and a password, just like you do with these digital products. But then I like to invest in companies. When I did a cruise around Colorado, I noticed there's a lot of waste management trash cans out there. That's probably a good buy, even in a pandemic. Waste management seems to be taking over the world. Or if I see a Federal Express truck. So part of it is me saying, I know there are real assets backing up my money. So if God forbid something happened, they can sell the trucks. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to wrap my old mind around this. I mean, I have money in my bank account, obviously. My wife would kill me if we didn't, if it was just all in Bitcoin. That would just be irresponsible. You can't go 100% to anything. But essentially, if you have money in USD right now, uh, what backs the U.S. dollar? Well, I know that I can go to the bank and they give them my ID and they'll give me the money that's in my bank account. They'll give me cash money. I, I don't have that confidence with Bitcoin or NFTs. Let's start with the process of you said you bought a $9 pack of cards. How did you pay for it? How did you pay the $400 for the Lamello? And then how much did you pay for Joker a couple weeks ago? 800 but how do you pay for it? Oh, you can use well, you can use Bitcoin, you can use any cryptocurrency, or you can use a credit or debit card. Really? Uh, it's very universal in that way. Yeah, so it's very user-friendly for anybody that wants I to I thought you had to create a wallet to hold your crypto products in. Is that something else? You do if you own Bitcoin or you have Ethereum. If you open, let's just use an example, a U.S.-based exchange, Coinbase, for instance. When you buy Bitcoin, it goes into your Bitcoin wallet. For instance, if you were dealing with a whole bunch of different currencies and you bought the United States dollar, it would go into your United States dollar wallet. And if you bought the yen, it would go into your yen wallet. You wouldn't mix it together. It would just be like, I have this much U.S. dollar, I have this much yen. 
but it, there is a Bitcoin wallet. But to get involved with NBA Top Shot, you just need a Visa or Mastercard. Uh, it, it's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. And you're telling me it's not too late. What blog sites? I noticed there are a lot of podcasts. Or do you just go to nbatopshot.com and it's self-explanatory? Hey, it's pretty self-explanatory at nbatopshot.com. You know, go to the website, take a look around. You, you put in, I don't even think they're accepting new users right now, believe it or not. Because they're doing this all-star pack drop, and they're worried. Of, they're a good company. Is they're trying, at least from what I can tell, they're trying to make right by a lot of people. They're trying to eliminate like bots from just buying packs and interrupting the site along those lines. Just a whole another conversation for another day. So they're slowly growing their platform, and they're trying to grow it somewhat organically. They don't just want to pile in as many thousands of users as they can. These people that are just instant flippers thinking they're going to buy a $9 pack and flip a LeBron. They're bringing in card collectors. They're bringing in sports memorabilia collectors. And they're just bringing in regular basketball fans. It's awesome, too. You, you, you get, I have this. So, I, Craig, I'll tell you this part. I was like a little nervous about when I spent a little bit of money on like that LaMelo ball for $400. I was like, I just can't get over it. I could watch this video at any time, you know? And I'm outside. We got some, like, random Colorado snow. You know, now how that goes. I'm shoveling my driveway. I see one of the neighbors. And I had my eye on this LeBron moment. And the reason I had my eye on the LeBron moment, it's like what you said earlier in the conversation, is he could be one one of the greatest players who ever played basketball, if he probably is, him or Jordan. And his value, if he blows his ACL tomorrow, his value is going to probably hold. It's a little different than if LaMelo Ball uh, blues ACL and doesn't play basketball for a year or two. I'm going to take a hit on his value. So I'm outside shoveling snow. I'm like, you know, like I'm not even going to explain to my wife, like I'm about to buy these digital moments, and I think it's a good investment. You know, she just got on board with Bitcoin. And I'm shoveling snow, and I, I see my neighbor, who's like 15, 16 years old, and I'm like, hey, do you know what NBA Top Shot is? I kid you not. Drops his shovel. I don't see him. I'm like, I'm just scared of him. <laughs> Runs into his house, comes out, brings out his phone to show me his Top Shot moments. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You can buy moments that are only a few dollars. And what Top Shot wants is for you to be able to go on their site eventually. You buy packs. You can pay, the most common sale is probably under thirty dollars, but then you see the headlines of the LeBron Cosmic or you know all these rookies or anything along the selling for a hundred thousand dollars. There's been several. I, I, I would just guess, let's say ten hundred thousand dollar moments sold. That's something, and it bridges the generations. Though you were talking to a youngster, and you're a bit of a youngster to me, but you had some common experiences in that you had a Tiger Woods card. Tiger Woods just got badly injured. If that was a top shot situation, or even with his trading cards, I'm wondering if this latest incident, does that destroy the value, or do you think it increases the value, or you would have to check online? I would probably have to check on with guys like Mr. Fogel, you know, who, who know that market like the back of their hands. At the end of the day, I'm just a hobbyist, a, a small collector that's having some fun. Right. But the other common vein is that you talked about your first forays into Bitcoin and you didn't keep track of it properly. And just like baseball cards get ruined. Are you past that point? And is that the problem for a lot of collectors, they lose track of what they have? 
Well, yeah, and you know, if you have a mass amount of cards, I can only imagine the inventory you have to take care of, you know, especially cardboard. And then when you get these, like, uh, the 1952 Mickey Mantle, I think uh, Fogel has uh, a PSA 10. He, he probably has it in a safe or a vault or, or probably not even in his house because it's worth millions. You know, he doesn't have it in his game room hanging up on his wall, I'd imagine. is a pure sports collectible investment, just like major art collectors. They don't hang their Picassos in their game room. You know, it's an investment. And fractional investing is very interesting as well, where you see a lot of people that, hey, you can buy 10% share of a Michael Jordan rookie. You never even see the card. It gets vaulted in these major vaulting companies and you know, when you're ready to sell it you sell it think about nba top shot is, is how you don't have to worry about the physicalness of it i don't have to worry about somebody stealing my card i don't have to worry about nicking the corner i don't have to worry really about losing it you know i have an account with nba top shot it's on my it's, it's in my profile and then the liquidity of it is the best part of it. You know, I, I like to make money. Everybody likes to make money. So if I get a card book, I, let's say I uh, walk downstairs, I have a Michael Jordan rookie card, PSA 10 graded right in front of me. It's worth five hundred to $750,000, they say on eBay. I have to list it. I have to verify. I have to do all that, send it in. So now that it takes maybe a week, two weeks, three weeks. NBA Top Shot, I can buy something at 6.02 a.m., and maybe something huge happens, the player gets traded or breaks a record, and I could sell it at 9.03 a.m. for a 10% increase or a 40% increase or a 2,000% increase. And it's, it's instant. It's money in the bank or money right into your account. The moment leaves and goes in possession on the blockchain, goes to the next user. And it's very liquid. You know the scarcity of it and the, the full transparency of all the sales as well. That's something else. So if you're buying like a cardboard card at a trade show, you don't know how many owners it's had. Not that it really matters, but like how many owners is it had, how much did it sell for before, how much did it sell for two years ago. You don't, it, it would be awesome to just have that log in front of you with these NFTs. It's you see the entire log and life of the card, what it sold before, what it sold after, everything along those lines. So you could, you could even use that as an investment strategy. I don't know. Well, the guy spent three hundred dollars on this card, and I'm trying to buy it for five hundred. Maybe he'll take a little less, knowing that he's going to turn a profit. You, you could use that information to your advantage. Here's my old school thinking on Bitcoin. I'm not that sold because you said it's some Japanese person. It may be a man. It may be a woman. I don't know. I'd like to know the person behind it. With NBA Top Shots, I do. I know who Adam Silver is. I know who LeBron James is. I know who Mark Cuban is. And these guys are all standing behind this product, aren't they? Yeah, those guys are standing behind it. But like you're, you're starting to get me a little riled up a little bit about the Bitcoin thing. Bitcoin's truly decentralized. Once they hit enter on the code, there's no stopping it. There's no changing it. There, there's nothing. Bitcoin is is mass. It's code. You don't need a CEO. You don't need a Robin. There's no Robin Hood CEO. Vlad can't stand there and turn trading from, you can't buy it anymore. You can only sell this because we don't like the way things are going. There's no CEO of Bitcoin. Once they hit enter, it's just a well-oiled, perfectly coded machine that 
you don't need a CEO. It's decentralized. When something's centralized, you have a governing body controlling it. At the end of the day, I think Topshop is awesome, but they could freeze my account and not let me get money out. Wow. See, so that's why I like your school of thought, right? And they could just take my moments. And it's the same thing with Bank of America. You're like, well, I trust Bank of America. They say, I have $12,000 in my bank account. I'm like, those are just numbers. They could just freeze your bank account. They're like, who are you again? Like, yeah, or like, you get in trouble? They're like, we're, we're freezing your assets. Right. But then I'd say, I, I could go to a court of law. I have the government standing behind it, FDIC and all of that. Well, again, we get we that's another time. That's why I like having a smarter than average show that's under 40 and a little more hip. And also to the influencers involved, you sent me a great article that Mark Cuban wrote on his Dallas Maverick blog site. I'll put it out on my social media. But guys like Mark Cuban, they are very involved. This guy is a bit of a futurist. He sees what's happening before other people. And in a way, I admire him, but in a way, I'm a little suspicious. What do you make of Mark Cuban and his involvement? He's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, among other things. Mount Lebanon grad. I, uh, I'm from the Pittsburgh area as well, so I, uh, I like Mr. Cuban. But besides the point, I think he has a good grasp of technology. He's obviously a Dallas Mavericks owner, so uh, every sale. I mean, the NBA gets royalties from Top Shot. So do I? Do I think he's this is like a pump and dump by him? Absolutely not. Do I think he's truly involved and interested? Yes, because I think he loves the NBA and he loves the product. But there's, I mean, you're talking about like Mark Cuban. You should look at the NBA players involved. Like, uh, there's so many NBA players involved with, when you go on Top Show, you can see, like, Tyler Hero and just NBA players that, like, are, like, trying to get their own moments. Uh, Halliburton's trying to get his own moment, his rookie moment, and add his rookie number. And they're talking about doing uh, virtual, actual autographs eventually, and rookie badges, and all these cool, cool items. And this is bringing, this is very similar to, like, uh, how like DraftKings and FanDuel with football and other sports as well was very engaging for fans. You know, people stopped becoming such like, hey, I'm a huge Denver Bronco fan. Let me stop you for a second because I do know sports wagering and it's my understanding that a guy like Hal Burton or any NBA player, Tyler Hero, they could not participate on FanDuels or DraftKings because there would be worry that they would fix the game. And... Isn't there that worry since if Tyler Hero makes eight threes in a game, his value is going to go up on top shots and he's investing in himself. Although I guess that's his whole deal. Of course, he's investing in himself. Sort that out for me. Well, that was, and the guys at NBA top shots might have to sort that out for you or in, in the NBA. But do you worry about a, a fix? I mean, when you got huge money and this guy's going to be jacking up threes, maybe to the detriment of his team. I just wonder. I just don't worry about that. I'm not worried. I'm just not worried about that. I, I don't think any, I don't think Tyler Heroes going to benefit by blowing a game because he's lowering or raising the value of his talk shot moment. But I think he, I think fans are going to be much more engaged with these players like myself. You, we talked about it earlier. You were like, you know, much of an NBA fan. I'm like, yeah, I'm really not. 
but I'm starting to really like certain players. And I like when they get involved. Like who? And it's very similar. Uh, like LaMelo Ball, Jokic, uh, you know, uh, like I'm following LeBron because what I have some like, shares of LeBron. Jamal Murray, can't you give him some <laughs> Jamal Murray. I, I have some shares of Jamal Murray on Top Shot. Can I, buy I, I them like from them. you? Sure. What, what if I said to you, hey, you know, smarter than average Joe, I'd like to tiptoe in. That Jamal Murray, I know you have it listed for 50 bucks. Can you sell it to me privately for 40 uh, you know, I know they come up with like a little, you truly are a lawyer at heart. My goodness. Yeah, <laughs> 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 You look at all the angles. No, I'm just like, wondering about whatever. the legalities. So you can gift a moment to a player. You can trade a card as well. So just like when you were kids, like, you know, in your backyard, you know, with your buddy and you're like, Hey, I have uh Ken Griffey. I'll trade you the Jose Canseco. And like, you know, you can do the same thing on NBA top shots. It's actually, you can send a gift to somebody. So some of these NBA players, it cracks me up because, you know, they got a lot of money and they're like, Hey, gift me my card, you know, give me my card. They want their card gifted to them. And obviously huge fans are like, Hey, here's your card, you know, because they're just in their Twitter feed and it, it's fun fan engagement, but it, it makes me laugh as well. Um, What was the original question? You're making me laugh. Is this entertaining? That's what I'm getting out of it is that you go to this website not only for the action, but it's entertaining. Yeah, it's it's certainly entertaining. You're watching these moments and uh, you you get these moments and they, they have challenges on the website where you collect X amount of players and you have them by this date and they'll give you a, a, a new card and only the people who have those players at that date will receive this new card, making that new card that gets minted even more rare. And it's really fun. And, and they, they have a good marketing team behind them. You asked if it's too late to get in. I don't think so because it's still running beta right now. And there's a lot of headaches in that regard. And, and they want to have packs available at all times. And right now it's a lottery system. But we're only looking at, I don't know, between 100,000 and 200,000 actual users. There's a lot more fans in NBA. There's a lot more collectors that are going to be interested. So put a number on it. How big? 100 or 200,000 participants now? Do you see that growing to 10 or 20 million? I have no idea. I guess I would base it off of how many Twitter followers the NBA have right now. I'm going to guess like... 50 to 70 million, maybe like 5 to 10% of those get involved in Top Shot. Fascinating. Now, in terms of hits and websites and apps, how many times a day do you find yourself going to NBA Top Shot? And your wife doesn't have to hear this. Go ahead. Well, she has an account, actually, <laughs> because I got her involved. <laughs> and, uh, I got her involved, and I was like, hey, you know, if you get something good, you should trade it with me. I'm sitting on it right now waiting for a pack. I'm currently number in line 26,392, and there's over 140,000 people in the waiting room with 61,160 packs available right now. At nine ninety nine so a pack? They're doling them out. No, women. this is fourteen. This is fourteen dollars a pack. This bucks. one, it is their young all-star collection. You know, like I said, we could talk forever about this, but there's 
there's just like other cards, there are certain moments that are common moments, which are moments that can be have like maybe a thousand digital copies and they can start at like maybe right around nine dollars for that moment, for example. All right. And, then and, there's a rare pack that's right. hundred and fifty to only nine hundred and ninety nine and that's a little bit more money. And then a legendary will there will only be like twenty five to ninety nine of those packs ever printed. And but how those much packs are those? maybe are you know, there was a pack recently, I did not get one, my wife didn't get one, we were bumped out, that was a thousand dollars. They dropped I think like twenty two hundred of them and like twenty thousand or fifty thousand people were in line in queue. It was a lottery system and only two thousand were blind draw a thousand dollars on a pack of cards. Yeah, for a pack of digital moments you can watch on YouTube for free. I know it sounds crazy, but NFTs, it's the next fucking right, thing to court. Collecting to baseball cards is crazy, too. No, this is going to keep your family together. This is good. I'm wondering if you had advice for me. My kids were big Pokemon card collectors. My late uncle was a famous and successful artist. I have a lot of his artwork. And I have an internet account and a Visa and a MasterCard. Should I go look for the Pokemon cards? Should I start digitizing my uncle's art? Or should I log on to NBA Top Shots and get in line so I can buy a Rising Star pack of cards tonight? Well, that's a good question. I would definitely get a Rising Stars pack. And I think you're too late for the pack tonight, but there is one tomorrow morning. Because why not? It's only $14. Not to put down $14, but the contents of the cards probably worth a lot more. Next question about just NFTs and what people should do, what I would recommend. I would just try to research as much as you can. I use YouTube. There's a, there's a YouTube channel called DCL Blogger. Uh, a guy named Maddie that talks about NFTs, what they are. These, these people are 10 times smarter than I could even dream. Uh, and it's just a great resource of information to figure out what like exactly a non-fungible token is, what an NBA top shot is. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't like FOMO into anything either. I mean, everybody asks like, is it too late for Bitcoin? Is it too late for top shot? Is it, it, it's, it, it, I guess it's like your risk tolerance. I wouldn't say anybody go a hundred percent into anything, but there's no reason not to like, you know, I always recommend people with Bitcoin, maybe like a small percentage, one to 3% of like your money put into Bitcoin, see what happens. You know, there's some sound reason why. And I would probably say the same thing with Top Shot. That's great. And I brought up art because, and we're not going to get into it tonight, but Digital art is through the roof. It's beyond belief the prices they're getting for things. And again, if you think about it, well, the Mona Lisa is worth a fortune. We've all seen it, but the guy who owns the actual picture, he's the guy with the value, right? Yeah, anybody could go. I mean, this is an analogy that's used all the time. Is Anybody could go to take a picture with their camera of the Mona Lisa, and they have a copy of the Mona Lisa, or you could buy a replica of the Mona Lisa, you know, like a, that looks almost identical, but neither are actually the Mona Lisa. One place has the Mona Lisa, and it's, it's essentially priceless right now. It's the same thing with digital art, that these artists, fabulous artists, uh, Beeple, Boss Logic, Hodes, I, I mean, all, all sorts of people, Fuacious, all sorts of great artists that are 
able to digitize certain arts, 3D animation, still art, oil paintings. Trevor Jones just did something called the Bitcoin Angel. It was an oil painting. And I think he sold like, man, 2,000 copies at $777. And one person got the original oil canvas. And it's appreciating. I think it's like two or three X right now in a week. It, it's it's really cool. And it's great for the creators. I mean, I'm talking from an investor mind for like, hey, you can make all this money. You can flip this. But from a digital art thing, these artists, especially with like COVID and galleries being out and, and just having not exactly like the greatest business mind always. Now they can digitize their art. A lot of them are doing art 3D animation. They can digitize it do some really cool stuff and Beeple sold a piece of art for 6.6 million I think last week and he now has a current auction with uh, his Beeple every day for the last 5,000 days he did a new piece of uh, digital art and that's at Christie's you know the big auction house and they're speculating a 10 to 15 million dollar uh, purchase price when that happens, art collectors are going to take notes. That's for the NFT. That's not like the oil. <laughs> you know, this is the right. NFT. Art collectors are going to flood to the place. Uh, yeah, already. I mean, I've been doing it for a little while now. I got like a fun little collection, uh, a few buddies that I've partnered up with, just because it's, some things are expensive, some, some things are very inexpensive. But, you know, you find an artist that has a following, uh, like Elon Musk's uh, uh, girlfriend uh, Grimes did uh, a drop on Nifty Gateway this past Sunday, I believe, and she had like an open edition collection. It was basically these digital NFTs with her music, and they were seven hundred, seventy five hundred dollars uh, for the open edition. Anybody could buy it within a, a five or seven minute time frame, and you were automatically uh, minted one. But then, you know, a lot of people are thinking to hold it and you know, appreciate down the line. Other other pieces of art appreciate right away. It, it's it's a it's a very unique uh, industry, but it's great for the collector. It's great for the artists because they get all the money right into their pocket. Wow! Now you're investing in digital art. What about Mrs. Smarter Than Average Joe? Does she have an art account too? She does not have an art account, but she she certainly is consulted on every buy. I'll tell you that much because, you know, I, I have a family. That's why you're smarter than average, Joe. Joe, you've been really a fountain of information. and You've made it approachable, and now I know what I'm going to be doing this weekend. It sounds like fun, and the the best way to learn how to do anything is just Tiptoe your way in, right? See if you like it. See if you understand it. Don't plunge in all your money. And we're not giving any investment advice, but collectibles, it's really taken off during the pandemic. Do you think it will sustain even after the pandemic? Uh, I do. I do. I mean, collectibles were picking up steam even before the pandemic. And uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Uh, I think they're here to stay. I mean, everything could be somewhat of a, a bubble or a micro bubble. So uh, I'm no market expert, but you know, I, I think if you're investing in things that are fun and you enjoy, it's cliche. It's like you, you shouldn't just invest in an artist or a moment just because you want to flip it. You should have, you should like that player. You should like that piece of art and have some fun with it. Fantastic. I had so much fun talking to you, smarter than average Joe. I hope you enjoyed it. Say hi to the missus. Take care of your kids. 
And thanks for the great thought-provoking conversation. Thank you, Craig. Take care. Bye, Joe. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high-quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP, and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Craig. Troubadour. My traveling troubadour. How are you? How are you? I'm well. I'm worn out. I did some traveling. I took a cruise around Colorado. There you are, back east, visiting the famous Henry Gunders, I take it? Yes, and are you back home? Of course. I have a show to put on. Well, I know. I thought maybe you were taking it on the road. No, I did Colorado. I went to places you never even heard about. Well, I know. Austin, Colorado, you said. Correct. It's got its own post office, although it's actually a subpart of Orchard City, as is Eckert and Corey. Eckert, Corey, and Austin are subparts of Orchard City, just outside of Delta, Colorado. How about that for me understanding Colorado more now? And you too. It's terrific. Tell me about the music scene there. 
the music scene was playing you on soundtrack because <laughs> okay you always say you've never written a song about the mountains what about the song this week i love it only a rock in the road and what kind of mountains do we have in colorado well, I, the, did I mention mountains? I can't remember. You're the one that pays attention here. You mentioned rocks and what is a mountain in Colorado, but for a big rock, the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains, you got that right. My nephew Charlie has a place in Austin, Colorado. It is available for rental. I'm going to put out information on social media because it is fabulous. And Troubadour, I need to get you there because it's right above the Gunnison River and we were rolling rocks, not, I didn't actually roll the rocks, but Charlie does, and he's made paths and incredible decks above the river. He's got six acres, and it's so exciting. That's terrific. He's got three tiny homes. Soon there will be another two, but I had a fabulous trip, and it occurred to me that not only the mountains of Colorado are named for their predominant feature, like Rocky Mountains. But Delta, that's a little bit lower. It's under 5,000 feet, and that makes all the difference when it comes to flowers blooming a little earlier, golf courses being open. Have you ever noticed that about Colorado and the altitude changes? Oh, sure. Yeah. Especially in the, you know, touring the area that you're going there, too. Yeah. Did you go by uh, Monument and Fruta? Did you go in, in no. that direction? No, you didn't go there. Okay. No, I did the loop. Mm -hmm. Then I went and saw my sister-in-law, who is Julie Riley. She's an attorney in Durango, Colorado now, and it was fabulous. And I took my bicycle instead of my dogs, and that was a great decision because I rode all around Delta, and in flat little Delta, there are some bluffs above the town. And honest to God, I took my life in my hands, Dave Gunders. I went up the bluff and then on Fifth Street, I think they call it, pretty much right into the sun. I went as fast downhill as I ever have because wow. there were no stop signs. And I think I got up to about 120 before I put on the brakes. That's what it felt like sure. to me. Well, I'm sure that's, I'm glad you haven't lost your sense of adventure, Craig. And then they have Devil's Thumb Golf Course in Delta. I went up there with my wedge and my putter. I had met the pro in the morning walking around. And my gosh, it's up against the Grand Mesa. And there to greet me were about 22 antelope. They had red manes. There was a dominant male with horns in the middle of his head. And he looked at me like I was not welcome. But I know the golf pro had said- welcome. He, he he was not having that much love for me. He was protecting the herd. And let me tell you, once we argued about what is the size of a herd, this was a herd, about 20 or 25. I've never heard of such a thing. Honest to God, I've never seen antelopes that look like that. But then I'm riding around 3rd Street, 3rd and 14th in downtown Durango. There's an elevated porch. And I'm looking there, and under a tree is the biggest buck and his doe partner. I assume they were married. They seemed committed. They were not a herd. And there they were on the front yard of a house that sits on one of the busiest intersections in all of Durango. 
I was startled by that. Took a few pictures, but he too had an attitude saying, you know what, city slicker, don't come too close. That's right. Well, at least at least you recognize that, Craig. It was their turf. It was their turf. Do you know what my new turf is? I only learned a lot about a couple of cities, Delta and Durango, I rode around. But here are the other cities I think I'm an expert on. Austin, Orchard City, Delta, Cedar Ledge, Olathe, Montrose, Telluride, Mancos, Durango, Pagosa Springs, Del Norte, Sawash, and Buena Vista. How about that? What a great trip. What a great trip. That must have been exciting. And it's great you brought your bicycle. I love doing that. Did not have any bad weather until I got just around Conifer. Almost slid off the road there. Thank you, Hashem, for saving me. But tell us about your travels. How's Henry Gunders? You know, Charlie, my nephew, said, I listen every week, but the best guest you've ever had on is Henry Gunders. Oh, I'll tell Dad that. I'm sure he'd love to hear it. Well, it's his life story and the way he told that it was fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Tell Charlie, thank you. He's doing great. I just got in last night. You know, he's he's here. His new, I say relatively new wife, is. Uh, she, they've been married now three years already. You know, she's taking good care of him. He looks terrific. He sounds good. His mind is inquisitive and sharp like always. So I'm very happy to be here. That's great. Well, you give him my best regards. Tell him that people who love my podcast love Henry Gunders. And let me ask you about Only a Rock in the Road. It's one of the few songs I've heard you write about a total breakup. Hey, this ain't going to work out. I mean, at least for this couple, that's what I got out of it. I don't know, Craig. It's subject to interpretation. Well, I think it might be a plea that they give it another another chance he's you know he's looking at it like hey it's just a rock in the road let's see if we can go around it or go over it or somehow deal with this problem that we've got see i took it another way i know i didn't write this song but to me what you really meant to say is this is a protagonist who's recognized that a relationship that he thought might go further is at an end i mean his head's got turned upside down And then she gave him the silent treatment and refused to talk to him. And then as the song progresses, I think he's realizing that he's going to be okay without her. He'll move on. And this relationship was only a rock in the road. Well, that, you know what, you've given me some enlightenment and things to, to think about, Craig. I, I never thought that, but you know what? Maybe it's best you don't ask what was behind the songs because I, I, I like your interpretation better. And you have that line in there that losing you is killing me, but then you right. get back to your upbeat self, the second part of the song. Who's the great backup singer on this one? Is it your daughters or that pro or who is it? it? It's No, no, it's that pro. Liz, Liz Ager was on this one. Yes, it was Liz again. Well, I love this song. And as befits the title, if you're going to name a song only a rock in the road, it has to rock. And it does. Well, thanks, Craig. Well, thanks a lot for visiting with me while you're back east with your papa. And here, without further ado, only a rock in the road by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Thanks, Dave. Welcome home.
Thanks, Craig. Just do this for me. Go to my website at thecreeksilvermanshow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase 
your income. Sandler knows what to do, and my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do, and I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say, Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107. For the best possible deal, tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Oh my goodness, the way a show can come together, even when I'm on the road, it starts with Marshall Fogel. What a story he has. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge welcomed him back. He's always welcome, as is smarter than average Joe, because he's smarter than average. He knows a lot of things that I don't, and he's willing to discuss it in a fun and friendly way. That's like my troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Just another rock in the road. This has been a great show. Join me next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.